Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have on as my guest, Dr. Beatrice Rapkin. Dr. Rapkin is a psychiatrist practicing with Cal Psychiatry. She's a board-certified general psychiatrist working with a variety of patients in her outpatient practice. While she specializes in medication management, she uses a multimodal approach with clients that draws on psychotherapy, mindfulness work, yoga psychology, and other integrative practices. Today, we talk about our shared specialty of psycho-oncology. We talk about the interplay between the biological psychological, and social factors that occur during the diagnosis, treatment, and post-treatment phases in one's cancer journey. We also talk about the impact that this has on the family system and how cancer not only affects the individual, but their family and loved ones as well. Welcome, Dr. Rapkin. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, I know you because you're part of our group at Cal Psychiatry, and I've wanted to touch on the topic of psycho-oncology on this podcast because it's something that I've had specialty training in, and I know it's something that you've had specialty training in. And I think it's about time that we did an episode to talk about psycho-oncology and what it means and what it is. Absolutely. Psycho-oncology is a big interest of mine, and it's actually a branch of oncology that in a way encapsulates the whole person, which is what I'm interested in, psychosocial oncology. So what is the impact of cancer on not just a person's disease process, but their personhood, their social life, their mental health, their spiritual health? You really just can't do chemo radiation and call it a day. You have to think about the impact of the disease process and the treatment on the whole person if you want to cultivate their wellness. Right. And I think also about psycho-oncology is cancer is this major diagnosis. I mean, in major treatment and major aftermath in terms of just post effects from treatment and just the trauma of what an individual has gone through. Right. And so it's almost this way to describe how so many different treatment modalities and approaches can come together to then lead to the best outcomes. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because cancer is such a big word and it encompasses so much. Cancer really represents a myriad of different illnesses, many of which are quite different from one another. Yeah, in our cultural zeitgeist, cancer is one of the most feared diagnoses and it Mm. impacts a huge impact. I don't know if you're familiar with Susan Sontag's work at all, but She's a writer who wrote beautifully about her own battles with cancer. She battled cancer three times. I think first it was breast and then it was uterine sarcoma. And then finally myelodysplastic syndrome, which she died from ultimately at age 71. But she wrote a book called Illness as a Metaphor that Mm. talks about how differently cancer is treated from other illnesses that it's used as a metaphor societally for like a scrooge or like some evil. If you look up cancer in a dictionary, it's this very like evil malevolent force. And that gives it more psychological power over us. There's many different things that can kill us, but cancer we fear more than most. Right. Well, it almost feels like this invader. It is an invader in your body that you must get rid of. 
right? And to have to really understand that that's inside of you, right, is traumatic in itself. And just how to rid yourself or this other idea of how to live with it. Right. And I think the fact that it does come from inside yourself is so difficult to reckon with. There's a sense of betrayal that your own cells are turning on you, Mm -hmm. that your genetic code is mutated now and that it's taking over from within. I think there's a comfort in battling, you know, sometimes an infectious disease and that it's an outside invader and you can conquer it by battling this outside force when it comes from within there's a sense of mystery and sometimes there's a sense of shame, depending on where the cancer came from, especially things like lung cancer, like were you a smoker? Is there a sense of like self-blame that you caused this entity to like sprout up inside yourself or with cervical cancer that might be due to HPV? Is there sexual shame associated with the diagnosis? Is the cancer a result of some environmental factor that represents like a rejection of your city environment? it ends up being much heavier in some ways than other illnesses for that reason. Right. Or also this, I mean, I guess this is not specific to cancer, but this familial vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like people in my family have this, and this is something that it's kind of feels like a curse. Right. So we could go so many directions (laughs) with this interview. I worked in the cancer field for many years at UCLA, and I noticed with my work with patients, I would often see people when they finished the most kind of intensive or stressful part of their treatment. And what I often noticed, I would say probably about 80% of the people I saw were post-treatment. And I would kind of talk to people about that and this idea of like, why is that, right? Why didn't they come to see me in the midst of treatment? And some people did, but there was a much higher percentage of people post-treatment. And the way that I conceptualized it most of the time with people, and it obviously depended on the case, it had to do with when you're in the midst of treatment, it's about survival. And you're doing everything you can to stay alive and to get every single treatment that you possibly can imagine to increase your chances of survival, if that's what you want to do. And this idea that it's only after treatment when things calm down a little bit, it's then you can process the trauma of what happened, the trauma of not knowing what the outcome is, the trauma of now living, maybe if you're in remission, but always being afraid that you could have a recurrence and how to live your life knowing that. Right. There's this juxtaposition between being in survival mode and trying to live at all costs and contending with this acceptance that there's a possibility it won't work and you will die. So how do you accept your mortality at the same time that you're fighting at all odds to preserve your life? Right. And how to live also this idea. I I just love the idea of understanding what this new normal is for people who have gone through cancer treatment, right? They are forever changed because of that experience. And with anything in life, anything major in your life, you are forever changed based on what you've been through and how you see your future and how you kind of interact with loved ones. And I always kind of found that quite fascinating and inspiring how people really figured out how they're going to get comfortable with that new normal in terms of saying, okay, this is today. It's kind of this idea. I have to live in the moment because I don't know what tomorrow brings. And how do I not live my day so worried about that? So worried about what's going to happen a month out from now. It's hard work for people. 
is hard work for anybody, whether or not they've received a life-changing diagnosis. It's something that I struggle with. And it is amazing to see survivors walk that tightrope of staying in the moment while usually still doing a lot of ongoing health maintenance in order to preserve their health. Yeah. And I also was always fascinated by the families, right? So how does that change the family system and how maybe they see a mother who gets breast cancer in their forties, right? Who was healthy up until that diagnosis and kind of how that really shifts the family dynamics and how there's different roles in the family because of that. I'm just curious if you kind of, you had some experience with different cases or trends that you saw. I think that period post-acute illness is so challenging because on the one hand, you know, you might be through the woods of actual physical experience of some of these harrowing treatments, but you're still beginning to reckon with the emotional effects. And I think both for a survivor and family members, there can be a desire to sort of move past it of, oh, that's over now, that chapter is closed. And maybe there can be a disconnect between the person who's coming to terms emotionally with the experiences they've just had and family members or loved ones who just want to have their person back and for things to go back to the way they were when in reality things will never return to mm-hmm. what was it will be a new normal yeah it also makes me think about you know you do all these things someone does all these things in in the midst of their cancer treatment to fight the cancer but then they're left with maybe some negative effects of chemo treatment or radiation treatment then then they have to live with those sorts of negative consequences knowing that they're grateful to be alive but then now have to sit with these negative effects that impact their quality of life as well right i'm thinking about cancers that affect ideas of gender expression, sexual function of, you know, prostate cancer. If you get surgery, you often have sexual dysfunction as a consequence or incontinence. You might have to take medications that block your sex hormones, which can also affect sensuality, intimacy, romance. For men, that can have profound effects on their conceptualization of themselves and on their masculinity. For women who have surgery to take out breast tumors or mastectomies, how does that affect your sense of femininity? How does that affect your love life? That's everything that you're returning to after this acute phase of illness is is done. But that's the part that we talk about the least. Like the rest of your life is the part that we don't talk about with cancer. Right. Yeah. Because more and more it's becoming kind of a people are surviving right? Um, Many more people are surviving from cancer and then have to deal with, you know, that after effect of the rest of their lives and, and what that means for them. I just think of so many inspiring cases I've seen over the years of that struggle of how to find oneself post-cancer and post-treatment and the journey that people go on. And oftentimes, I mean, I think that's the gift of what we get to do. We get to see people through that journey. And when someone maybe sees a mental health provider, a psychiatrist, you really see them at their lowest point. And it's that ability to kind of watch that progression in a way that like you can't, it's hard to predict exactly what that's going to look like, but humans in general are very resilient. 
and they find ways to make things work. And I always, I mean, I, I was just so grateful to have that experience to be able to walk through that process with people and really see what that looks like and kind of how personality strengths really shine through in terms of kind of how they figure out a new life. It's different than what they had imagined their life was going to be, but it's still fulfilling. Right. And sometimes the best we can do as mental health providers is just be passengers on that same train and acknowledge that we don't know where that train is going. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, I mean, there are other kind of thoughts about, I I think what we're talking about a little bit more today is kind of this post-cancer treatment. And I mean, I guess my question is, as if you consider yourself, if if someone kind of calls themselves a psycho-oncologist, and we talked a little bit about what that means. It's kind of drawing from just a holistic viewpoint of not just the actual treatment, but the repercussions and how that affects every facet of your life. I guess one question is if someone has gone through cancer treatment or someone's had a family member or you know, a partner go through cancer treatment, is it important that they see someone that specializes in this specific field of mental health treatment? Is it not? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's so individual. If you've gone through this process and you have somebody that you feel sees you and understands your journey and your struggles, there's no obligation to go to somebody else just because they specialize in psycho-oncology. I think what people struggle with though sometimes is that their old therapist or the person that they were working with before does not fully get the extent of medical interventions, the ramifications are really all aspects of life on like physicality, on emotion, neuropsychiatric effects, and that it can be hard to relate after a point. So that's some feedback that I've gotten from, from clients about you know why they're switching to somebody with psycho-oncology expertise. But it's by no means necessary. It's whatever's auspicious for the individual. There are just a lot of different facets to consider. And I think what's great about psycho-oncology is that it is integrative and it tries to put all these things together. Mm-hmm. And what is the training, say, of a psycho-oncology specialist who is a psychiatrist? What, what does that training look like? So it's very, people come to psycho-oncology by different routes. Some people have training in both psychiatry and internal medicine, and will even get into psycho-oncology by first specializing in hematology oncology, which is subspecialty training in internal medicine that focuses on cancer treatment. So they're coming at it from the medical side, but with an informed mental health perspective. Other people have training in psychiatry and they do subspecialty training in consult liaison, which is integrative mental health work for medically ill persons. There's also specific training in psycho-oncology. So I think the path there is different for different people. Some people also just discover this field through their career work that their career has brought them to the care of persons with cancer. So long story short, different paths all going into the same. Right. I think of it as kind of this, this spoke and there's kind of a center of the wheel and it's everyone's coming towards the center, but just from different initial specialties that they might have with the overall goal of just kind of understanding holistically so many different aspects of what someone goes through during cancer treatment and post-treatment phase. 
Right. And I should add that it's not just psychiatry and internal medicine and oncology. It is social work. It is psychology. Sometimes it's genetic counseling. You know, there's so many different aspects to this field to consider. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering before we end, I'm just thinking about who might be listening to this podcast, right? And I wonder if it's someone who just is curious what psycho-oncology is, but I wonder if it's also people who maybe are in the kind of going through cancer treatments, or maybe they just know somebody who's going through treatment and they're just kind of curious about how to approach or how to help. And I wonder if we could focus on that. Do you kind of, and I know it's so case specific, but this idea of, you know, how to approach someone who's going through treatment during the various stages and, you know, not that there's absolute good or bad things to do, but kind of overall suggestions in terms of how to be supportive to somebody. Yeah, you know, a lot of don'ts come to mind (laughs) that I hear. So don't assume you understand. I think if you have a loved one that's going through cancer, sometimes the best thing you can do is express curiosity about what the reality of their experience is like, not what you think it's like, not what you fear it's like, not what you've seen on TV. What is it actually like for that individual in their lives? The other thing is we have a tendency as human beings to share the struggles of people we know in an attempt to relate. (laughs) That's not always helpful for somebody to hear. So if you if you're talking to somebody who's battling cancer, it's not necessarily helpful to hear that your neighbor died from colon cancer or they had that same cancer and it recurred or that person did great because you don't know what journey your loved one is on. You, you don't know where that journey is taking them. So comparisons or predictions sometimes can feel alienating. That actually makes me think about support for family members, partners, right? There are great resources out there for partners. And I think of UCLA, there's a group for husbands of breast cancer, people going through breast cancer, people who have gone through breast cancer treatment, and how important it is to, not that you compare yourselves, but kind of be around people who maybe have had similar experiences to feel that you're not alone though in that struggle. That's such a wonderful point because everybody who touches cancer is affected by it. So sometimes you're the person in the driver's seat and sometimes you're bearing witness to somebody you love fighting this extremely frightening illness. And both of those positions are hard in their own ways. And we have to honor our own struggles in order to help other people through. So having some solidarity with people who watch loved ones face cancer can be a big help in ultimately supporting the loved one that's going through it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just think about how important those groups are for certain people. Right. And there are some people also who are like, I don't, it doesn't work for me either. And so I think also this idea coming back to kind of where we started, it's, it depends on the individual, right. And what is going to work for them. And there's all these resources that you can draw from, but it really has to do with thinking about what is the best path and what are the resources that are going to work the best for that person and what's not going to work the best for that person either, right? Because I have seen also people who are just, they're like, I'm going to do everything I possibly can. And it becomes so exhausting 
And there becomes a line where it's too much, that your life is too focused on your cancer treatment and you forget to focus on other things in your life that make you feel normal. Exactly. And sometimes as providers, we can contribute to this in the sense that when we are working with somebody with a poor prognosis or who's struggling, sometimes we feel distressed and the way we want to address that distress is by having our clients get more mental health support, participate in a support group, but what we're really feeling is sadness, right? So we have to recognize that and not ask people to do things that might overly burden them when so much of their life is already about cancer. Right. right. It is sometimes nice to have a break from thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And reasons to step outside of yourself. Right. When I've seen people through this journey, it's they kind of over time figure out what that line is. Right. And so how much they really want to dive in and how much they want to pull back a little bit to say, you know, these are things that I used to enjoy in my life and I want those back. And I want to try to figure out how I can do some of those things too. And not every moment think about my cancer and think about my treatment or what's going to happen and what my next step is going to be. How much do you want to identify with your cancer part of your life? Right. Yeah. Well, I think with anything we deal with in our with mental health and how we work with people, it's about this balance and it's about creating the balance that's really on the right level for that person that you see. I love this talk. <laughs> when we first were talking about what we were going to talk about for psycho-oncology, we kind of were like, let's just talk and see what hap- happens. But yeah. I think there's just so much to think about with this. But I keep on saying, I keep on going back to it again. It really has to do with the individual. And I think that's kind of the bottom line of our conversation today, right? That part of having the specialty in psycho-oncology and being in that world is to really be very curious, not only as the provider, but as a family member or, or, or an individual going through treatment, like, okay, this, you know, let's see how this goes. Let's approach it with curiosity and not necessarily too much anxiety, though that is very reasonable at the same time. I guess the word is kind of a compassionate approach is probably kind of a good way to think about it. Right, a compassionate curiosity and support that doesn't feel stifling over the course of a disease that often is. Right. Well, thank you for your time. And I'm going to make sure that we put that book on the episode description. So if the listener is interested in reading a little bit more, they can. I think that's a great resource to include. Absolutely. And another one I highly recommend is The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Yeah, it's a good one. We'll add that too. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.